1: markets speculation and risk this is the chat with traders podcast hosted by aaron Feifield.
2: what's good everyone welcome to the show you are plugged in to chat with traders episode number 215 this time i'm speaking with william beecham will's the director and the founder of seamless capital an algorithmic trading firm based in cambridge england But Seamless doesn't trade in financial markets, as most of us are accustomed to. Seamless trades in sports betting markets, most notably Hong Kong horse racing, but also football and tennis matches too. However, Will didn't anticipate things would turn out this way. He spent his teenage years hell-bent on becoming a professional poker player. It was only later when a buddy of his, who had recently left one of the larger high-frequency trading firms, pitched him with the idea of trying to apply similar HFT-like strategies on sports betting exchanges. With time, the two developed several strategies, generating six figures, although Will's buddy would return to HFT, yet Will stuck with it and continued pushing on, in a bet that's truly paid off as Will has since scaled his sports betting operation from being a one-man band to a team of 15. Last year, the firm did 50 million pounds in turnover and is annually netting seven figures in P&L. As you may have noticed, this is a slightly longer than usual episode. And although there aren't too many technical details inside, Will has a really cool story about his path to now and shares a lot of productive ideas from the highs and lows of his teenage years trying to win at poker, to the origins and growth of Seamless, Will's thoughts on competition, markets, edge, and team building, it's all covered in this episode. Ladies, gents, here is William Beecham for 2.15. So today you are running a quant sports trading team of 15 staff currently. But if we track it back, you know, it really all stems from you at 15 years old playing poker. Can you tell me a little bit about your early poker days?
3: Early on, when I was 15 years old, just like a lot of 15-year-old boys, I wanted to make money. When you're a kid, you got a lot of spare time, and so I was always ambitious as well. Like I, I always knew that, like I didn't just want to job at Tesco's or you know the local supermarket or whatever. And so the question was, how can I make a lot of money as a 15 year old? And so to me at the time, the most logical and sensible answer to that question was professional poker. You know, it was back in, it was like back in like 2000, like mid 2000s. And like, there was a lot of like high stakes poker on TV. There was a lot of like, um, the world series of poker and you, you know, you could see all all these people just like making millions of dollars. And so I thought like, okay, uh, let's give this a crack and uh yeah so I went out I I got the you know I, I got all the books I could find on poker spent my pocket money and I read them all like basically like I read all these books and I studied it and then I started playing like um like you could play these free games so you know you just play with like pretend money and like I remember like being like 15 or whatever and like I would win all this pretend money, right? And so I I was pretty convinced that I was like the best poker player on the planet because of all the free money that I'd won. And so one day I sort of said said to my mum, I was like, mum, I've got a great idea. I just need to borrow your credit card for 10 minutes. Don't ask any questions. Um, I'll pay you back. And so, you know... The great mum that I've got, she said, "All right, son, just you know, don't spend more than the fifty quid." And you know that was all fine. And uh, and so I deposit the the fifty quid, and I started playing like um, basically the very very low stakes games there was. There was like once one cent, two cents sort of games, and um, I was terrible. I was just like the worst. The, like I was worse than like the average bad poker player. I, I really did start off as just like the worst poker player going. I would always bluff. I would always go in. I would like always be gambling. Um, like, I th- I think like, like the, the people who are naturally good poker players are quite cautious and quite um, like calculated, but my natural style was just very aggressive, taking loads of risks, trying to pull off bluffs left, right and center. And I just, I lost like the, I I had $50 and I lost 40 of it. And I was like, like at the time, $50 was a lot of money, you know? So, um, so I thought, okay, look, I'm going to this 10 pounds left. I don't ask my mom to borrow a credit card again. Um, I've got this $10. And so that was when I kind of had to really try to play as, as like, um, disciplined as, as possible. And I just, yeah, like I would every day after school, I would just sit in front of the computer, like reading these, these poker forums, reading these poker um, books and just doing maths. And it it started off just like the very, very simplest sort of maths that you could do. If you've got aces and the other guy's got Kings and you go all in, what's the probability that aces is going to win, right? If you've gone all in and I've got a flush draw, what's the probability of me hitting that flush draw and should I call, right? And just learning about basic concepts and basic maths and, um, and yeah, you know, I, I was good at maths at school. And so for me, it was just this really fun game, which you could keep playing and keep practicing and keep trying to get better at with the, like the allure of like one day, if you got really good at this game, you could make a lot of money. Yeah. I, I literally spent a summer doing that. I spent, and then at the end of the summer holidays, days, every day after school, that's all I would do. And, you know, I started to get. I started to win money. I started to get better. And so like, I would, I turned the $10 into a hundred dollars. And the thing which I remember just like, uh, so clearly is like the first time you, you, you run up your bankroll to a hundred dollars. That's like a big deal. Cause it's like you had 10, you got to a hundred. That's like a milestone. It's like, you know, that you, that you can make money now. All right. And so I got hundred dollars. I say, okay, that's it. Now I'm ready for the for the big leagues. I'm going to stop playing my $0. one cent, $0. two cent game. I'm going to play two cent, five cent. I'm going to play with the big boys now. Immediately, I just get spanked. These guys are way better than me. Um, I basically lose ninety dollars and I'm back to ten dollars again. All right, so I'm back to square one. I've got to, I've got to go back down to, to the low stakes of $0. one cent, $0. two cent, and uh, and I'm playing just monkeys basically. Like the people playing $0. one cent, $0. two cent, they don't care about the money all that much so I cared about the money way more than anyone else um so you know I go back to my discipline playing um and yeah like I managed to turn that ten dollars up to a hundred dollars again and I say okay this this let's have another crack and this time I step to two dollars five dollars and this time I actually managed to win money right and so like I turn that hundred dollars into five hundred dollars okay now I'm now I really am the best poker player on earth and I I move up to the next stakes which is like five cents 10 cents and it's just the same pattern again and again like I move up I get absolutely spanked get totally out outclassed and have to move back down but then I grind it out I grind it out until I can have another shot and so and it just moves up and up and up until when I was 16 years old I'd made like 20 20, like I'd made $20,000 in like in a summer and then and it's just the same story every time. Like I was so convinced when I'd won this $20,000, I was just so convinced that I was just the best poker ever. That I took that $20,000 and I played literally the highest stakes poker that you can basically play. And so I basically sat at the So I was 16 years old. I was sat at the table with like $2,000 in, in front of me. And I would just go all in, lose $2,000, reload my stack, another $2,000, go all, all in. I lost that twenty thousand dollars in like a day, right? So I'm, I'm you know, I'm 15. I've just spent the last year trying to earn this twenty thousand dollars. Lost it in a day. Cool. Back to square one. And so I basically kept doing this, where I would, I would really aggressively push myself, challenge myself, get myself into games which I just had just no right being in, and uh, and losing every like pretty much losing my shirt. And then just grinding it back and grinding it back. And so it was like, yeah, that, that, that $20,000 was the first big milestone. I remember getting up to like $80,000 at one point when I was like 17 or something. And I so badly wanted to hit a hundred thousand. But when you're playing poker, like, I don't know if you've ever played much poker, it's easy to get what they would call tilted. It's easy to get like kind of emotionally sucked into a game. And so I would like, I remember this one day, literally when I was 17 years old Had $80,000 in my poker account, by the way, like I never ever withdrew the money, like any profits I made, I would just be like, this is ammunition to play higher stakes. Um, I never ever withdrew any money. Just all the money I want, I just put straight back into playing higher stakes And I had this 80 K bankroll and I started playing this, this guy. And he was just like getting really lucky, really lucky. And like in a day he won like $5,000 off me. And I said to him like, "Let's play heads up just you versus me. Uh, let's play heads up for like high stakes. And it's just the dumbest thing I've ever done. But like me and this guy were playing like eight tables of poker, um, going all in left, right and center. And yeah, I just—I literally just went through the full 80k in a day, and and like to lose 80k, like a thousand dollars at a time. It actually takes a long amount of time, and so it was like a 12-hour session of just 17-year-old me uh, playing horrifically, you know, horrific poker until it was literally like six o'clock in the morning. I looked at my poker balance, and it w- it wasn't quite zero, but it, I stopped at the point where I was like. If I, I just think he, he quit. Like if he kept going, he would have busted me entirely. But like he, he basically won $75,000 and left. And it was like me, six o'clock in the morning, uh, 5K left my account. I just like blown 90% of, you know, of my last two years work. And, uh, and man, that's, that is painful. That is, you know.
2: You must have been absolutely just crushed by that. I mean, how did that feel?
3: Oh, like. It kind of feels like, um, if you've ever had like a pet die, it literally just felt like my pet just died and I just laid in bed and I, I don't think I left the, left my bed for like two days. I just remember thinking like, how am I so dumb? (laughs) Like, how did this, (laughs) I, yeah, like this was just the dumbest thing that I'd, I'd ever done. Um, I just thought, man, I have to, I have to get, get it back. Like I have to just, um, the funny thing is, is like, you know, like once you, once you're back down to $5,000, like, you know, it's going to take you six months or a year or even two years to get back to that 80,000 point. So like, that's the, that's the thing, which is so uh, depressing, but I always knew I could get it back. At least I had that confidence. And so it was really like, um, I, I just knew that I had to learn and to never make that mistake again. Right. It's like, so I would basically, I kept playing poker until the, until I was about, 18. And at that point I, I had won like I had 250 K in my, in my account. Um, and I was routinely playing like the very highest stakes, um, of poker and I was, uh, I was doing well. Right. Um, and you know, I loved it. Like I, it was just, um, it was just a really passionate thing. Like, um, to get better, you really have to do the maths. You really have to crunch the numbers, do the analysis, go away and do your homework. And so, it was just like a great game where like to get better, you would just do loads of maths and study it. And then you would, you would go and apply those loads lessons and make money. And so it's like, it really is like the perfect education for anyone who wants to do trading because the feedback is just, is there. like you make a single mistake, boom, all your money is gone and you go back to, to square one. And so, and so, yeah, I got to, 18. And I said to myself, all right, I want to be a professional poker player. Um, This is what I'm good at. This is what I like. And it's, you know, at the time, like I was making way, way more money than anything else that I could have imagined doing. Um, But everyone kind of wanted me to apply to universities and stuff like that. So I said, listen, like um, I'll apply to university, but I'm only going to go if I get into um, Cambridge. Um, and I I don't really know my logic behind that. I think it was just like, I'm just a super competitive person. I think like anything I do, like I just, I, I either want to get, I want to win or I don't care. So that's just the weird personality that I've got.
2: Just before we go too much further, I'd just like to ask you a question. Um, and we'll pick back up from here in a moment. I know you were only young at the time, so maturity might've been a factor there, but how did you break out of this pattern of build, 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 blow up, build, 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 blow up? How did you put a stop to that?
3: This is the honest answer is like, I kind of feel like I didn't put a stop to that pattern until I was like 28. So I, I have, I have more blow ups to come.
2: Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Keep going then. <laughs>
3: Yeah, and like if you haven't blown up, it's like um, yeah, it's like it's li- like just imagine coming home and everything you've worked for is gone. Like that's what a blow up feels like. And I would do that like routinely every two years of my life. Um, and and yeah, and the pattern is is like now is very clear to me where it's just this overconfidence and this this drive and this risk taking. Where if you're overconfident. And you, and you want to take risk, you're just drawn to these higher and higher stakes games. And at some point, you're going to be outclassed, right? And so I would just move up and move up and move up until I was outclassed. And so the the downside to that is, yeah, like there were people who were not as good at poker as I was, who made way more than I ever made, right? Like compared to them, like I made one tenth of what some of my peers would have made in the same sort of time. And why is that? Because of risk management? Because they were consistent. They weren't interested in playing the toughest games. They weren't interested in like in playing the highest stakes or challenging themselves the most. They were interested in just consistently making as much money as possible. Just very sensible, very diligent people who knew what they were good at and would stick at it. And rather than working hard so I would, always, like, I would always try and do things the hard way. So there's a hard way to make money at poker, which is like do loads and loads of maths and loads of analysis and study the game really well and take on anyone. That's the hard way to get to make money at poker. And then there's a kind of a different way, which is a bit easier in some sense, which is like just find terrible poker players and only play against them. It's right, and so I would play anyone, anyone in the world. I would play, and if you have that, if you have that attitude, you're gonna you're gonna have a lot of good players that want to play you. A lot of players that are better than you want to play you, and they will take your money until you learn to get as good as them. Um, so yeah, like I I tried to teach myself a different variant of poker called so my bread and butter was Texas Hold'em, which you know I'm sure you're familiar with, or like a, a lot of people will be. And there's another very popular form called pot limit Omaha, and it's a totally different game, um, but it's you know it's it's still poker. And I tried to learn that, and I honestly, like when I was 18 years old, I've lost like at least two hundred thousand dollars playing playing pot limit Omaha, which is which is like a game I should have never been playing to begin with. And so it's just this pattern of like of overconfidence, taking risks which don't really need to be taken. And then learning a good lesson from it. And I think as long as you, as long as you can learn the lesson from it, it's, it's pr- like for me, I always, I always felt like in the end, at the end, it was worth the price, but it's not the easy way. Like it would have been, I, if I could, if I could go back time, I would just say to myself, like, Will, you don't need to lose 90% of your bankroll to learn that particular lesson. There's actually a much easier way to learn it. Mm. And, and so, for example, if you play against someone better than you, you can just stop once you've lost 10% of your bankroll. You don't have to stop only after you've lost 90%, if that makes sense. That makes
2: perfect sense.
1: <laughs> Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the US markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more.
2: So you started talking about how um, you were going to, you're looking into going to university. Yeah. I mean, um, how did you work poker in around university?
3: So I, I actually have like a very, very kind of like working class background. My mom never, like, I don't think my mom finished school. My dad, my dad, you know, he really finished school with like terrible, terrible grades. So a really kind of non-academic, really working class background. And so when I went to school, I ended up getting terrible grades. I was not interested in school at all. I just wanted to play poker. Um, but then when, once I got to college, so in the UK, you go to college from 16 to 18 years old. And it's kind of like... Well, anyway, like, and I really kind of knuckled down because I just said, if I'm here, I may as well try my best to get into Cambridge. Um, and I studied super hard and I actually did pretty well. And like a lot of like the maths tests, I, I did well, I remember struggling so hard with economics and writing essays, just terrible, terrible at writing any essays, but the maths was always quite easy. Um, and so somehow I I got rejected from loads of universities, but then Cambridge, the one I actually wanted, somehow managed to like accept me. Um, so I, you know that was just really really lucky. And uh, you know they send you a letter when you get accepted, and I still remember like opening up the letter, thinking like, oh god, is this going to be like a rejection? Or <laughs> um, but yeah, so so I got accepted there, and you know I went to Cambridge to study economics, and I kind of said to myself like. I'm still very interested in being a professional poker player. For me, being a professional poker player was my number one goal in life at 18 years old. And I kind of thought Cambridge is just a really cool experience, which I just want to do and see what it's like. And I turned up and I was, you know, just overconfident. I thought, you know, I can handle this you know. Uh, and man, like that first, that first term at Cambridge, like I was in, like when it, like it didn't matter which room I was in, I was always the dumbest person in the room. Like they would set you, um, like, uh, homeworks or like worksheets. And I would just always just do terrible. And I was trying to play poker at the same time as do my studies. So I would like study for two hours and play poker for six. And I was just doing terrible, terrible, terrible. And then at one point, like, I think like my supervisor came up to me. And she was very concerned. She was like, Will, like, if you keep it at this rate, you're not going to be in Cambridge a year from now. And so at that point, I like I kind of realized that like, if I've come to Cambridge, I should give it my honest effort. And so I kind of put poker on pause and just focused on with my studies. And I'm not a very good student. I kind of, I worked. It didn't matter how hard I worked. I would always just get a 2-1. So um, after three years of working as hard as I possibly could, I ended up getting a two one, which isn't bad, but yeah. And yeah, like that was just a great experience. Um, they taught me, they taught me more maths, more, more economics, more game theory, which are all really powerful tools for, um, for solving poker. Um, and I was really excited. Like by the time I finished my economics degree, I felt like I I really had a clear path to, to, to reaching the top ranks of poker. At that time, you know, I made a lot, of, a lot of friends, a lot of really, really smart, creative, clever people, and they were all going off to work at banks, hedge funds, quant firms, and, um, and I remember sort of hearing about the very best ones, like the very, very best firms, and they were saying, okay, my first year I'm going to get, I'm going to earn six figures, but like you can earn so much more. And so I thought, okay, this is interesting. I will apply to a few of these very, very top, top firms. And no one was interested. I got like, I basically got zero, zero interviews, zero job offers. No one wanted uh, to even reply to my applications. Um, So I said, uh, yeah, I said, fine. All right. There's some, I guess the world wants me to be a poker player. So once I finished Cambridge, I went back home to live with my dad and I just, got the laptop out and you know, it was like, it was like nothing to change. You know, I was straight back to, to playing poker, um, to trying to build a bankroll and keep moving up stakes. And it was going pretty well. i had been doing that for about six months and then I had a really in- interesting call. So when I was at poker, I had one best friend, his name is George, and I would spend all day with him and we were like, just totally, totally thick as thieves. Um, and he and I both ran the poker society together and he and he was like a legit maths genius. Like he was just like, when I was doing my economics, like homework and stuff and I'd get stuck on the maths, I would just go to him and he would just know the answer uh, straight away. And so after playing poker for about six months, he had a situation where he was leaving his firm in London to go to new york and when he was going to go to new york he was going to kind of start his own team he, he was he was really really good at
2: can i just interrupt you there what sort of firm was it i'm going to presume it was a trading firm
3: he was at the the best hft firm around so this is like back in by like early 2010s and, and it, was, it was kind of like the heyday for hft in many ways and so he was at the best firm Doing really, really well, and he he'd had this incredible offer to go to New York and start his his own team. Now, when you leave one firm to go to another, they've got these non-competes. They call by, right, and so he had to have six months gardening leave. And so, so for six months, he wasn't able to do anything on a financial exchange. Um, and one day he he called me up. And he said, "Well, listen, I want to take these algorithmic strategies that they've been applying to financial exchanges." And I want to try and run it on a sports exchange, right? So in the UK, they've got it in Australia too. Betfair is a a really big sports exchange. Um, and, And I said, George, listen, I don't know any coding. I wasn't very good at stats. Like, how am I going to help you to make algorithmic trading strategies for Betfair? And he said, Will, like, you want it bad enough. You love making money. You've got that right sort of brain. Just give it a go and we'll see what happens. And it really sounded very, very interesting to me. And I sort of thought at the time, I kind of thought, listen, like with this poker stuff, you can lose like a year's income in a day. And so I thought, even if this thing doesn't do very well, it could at least like diversify my risk a bit where if I just build a black box or, you know, have a share of a black box, which is just generating some, some profit that's kind of like some form of insurance or something it's a form of diversification so i said all right let's let's do it
2: so i know you guys were friends but how come he reached out to you and wanted to do this with you because it sounds like he had like the the hft or the the strategy insight and obviously the actual idea to trade on the sports exchanges like what did you what were you bringing to the table here
3: yeah. So I actually never really, um, got in sync with him on that. Like, I think like in hindsight, he made a very good call. Like, um, once we started making the model, so to kind of do that, the HFT strat- strategies, there was one component which was like implementing the trading logic and that's just a lot of coding. Right. And he, and he would work on that. But then there's another component, which is kind of like the research, Um, where you've basically got a data set or a back tester or a a simulator, and you kind of just have to try and figure out how to make money. And if you've got something which makes money, how are you going to make more? And so with this thing, it's kind of like, it's not really in the textbooks, like how to make money trading is not really like a textbook question, right? Like, um, you know, obviously if it was in the textbooks, people would do it and, uh, the money wouldn't be there anymore. So you've kind of, it takes it takes a certain attitude, a certain set of skills, a certain approach and determination to kind of figure out like where the money is and then how to get more of it. Um, and so, yeah, like he just, I I think, I think this is kind of where poker actually serves as like an amazing training background where I literally spent the last five years thinking nothing other than expected value, Um, random outcomes, understanding the probability of events and like how that links back to making money, managing a bankroll, managing risk to not go bust. Um, and all of these sorts of concepts. So I had, I probably had like 80% of it was already there, but, and so I kind of think he, he, he saw that and said, listen, like he, he gave me that final 20%, if that makes sense.
2: And so did you have to, were you forced to learn how to code during this, this stage?
3: Absolutely. And it's funny, like actually one, one piece of advice is like, I was always scared of coding. I always saw the sort of people that were doing coding and I thought, man, they're just a different sort of person to who I am. I can't code. It's like, I don't know why I always said to myself, I couldn't do it, but I'd never really tried. And I'd always sort of told myself, that's not something that you would be able to do when it came down to it, when it was like the only way you're going to make money is to get good at coding. I bought a bunch. It was the exact same thing I did with poker. I just bought every textbook that I could find on coding and I read it. And guess what? I Like when I started, I sucked. I was terrible. I was like the worst coder ever. But if you keep at it and you keep studying and keep learning and keep pushing yourself, you will get better. right? And it's actually, it's not that hard. Like if you, it's, it's really scary when you But if you just keep at it and keep at it and keep at it. And I would like at this stage in my life, I would have my laptop with me like 24 seven. If I went to a restaurant, I'd have my laptop. If we, if it was Christmas day, my laptop would be open and I would be coding. And so I literally just spent nonstop the next three years, just coding and coding and coding and coding.
2: And um, what sort of things were you coding? Was this research or the, the strategies or
3: Yeah. So, so to start with, this was like, this was back in like early 2010s. And so machine learning was an AI was really, uh, it was, it was kind of kicking off in a big way. So it was at that time when a lot of people were kind of getting switched onto the fact that like machine learning approaches, right. Which is really these computer scientists, um, algorithms, That these approaches to what would traditionally have been uh, statistical and like mathematically uh, based approaches to questions of like understanding data, Um, people getting switched on to the fact that like machine learning was producing amazing results. Like in places where uh, traditional stats wasn't getting very good results, machine learning was doing it incredible. And so I always kind of feel like, I guess in the 90s, you kind of had a big, um, there was a big quant revolution in finance. And that was, that was kind of people realizing you can take this data and you can take stats and you can find a lot of edge, right? Which, which before people were doing stuff based on gut um, and, and they, they were using stats. And that was like what the quant revolution of like the, the 90s and the 2000s was all about. But I was just there in the early 2010s when actually you had this brand new breakthrough technology of AI and machine learning. And my first 18 months, I just read so much about machine learning, so many textbooks and papers. And like I think I think the thing which is so funny is I'm just a terrible student. Like I'm so bad at it. And so having to read these textbooks and having to read to read these papers was a real like chore, real challenge. I had to sort of push myself to do it. But I I knew, I knew um, that if I wanted to be a great trader and I wanted to do as well as I could, um, I had to learn this stuff. Right. And, and you know, everyone learns in different ways. So for me, it was like, I would watch YouTube videos. I would read textbooks. I would speak to my friends and I would just try and just submerge myself in it. And I'm actually not a very fast learner. And so like um, yeah, like it was literally my life. Like I feel sorry for my family, my friends, my girlfriend, because like they would invite me, right? Like my girlfriend would invite me to meet her parents. Right. And like, I would take my laptop, just, I would always have my laptop wi- uh, with me. And so I'd be like, hi, you know, I met a dad. Hi, I met a mom. And I'd say, okay, I'm going to go sit in the living room now and crack open my laptop <laughs> and play and play around with machine learning algorithms. And I was always fitting models, always tuning stuff. And it was, again, like I look back on it and I think it's just a really great experience that I was able to just devote as much time as I wanted because I felt like um, at 21 years old, 22 years old, 23 years old, I just felt like I could take as long as I needed to learn this skill really, really well. And so I, I really just devote myself to learning everything I could about machine learning and how to do it. And, and, and to do it, you've got to know a bit of software engineering as well. And so... Fast forward to about three, three years. He and I together had made strategies which were making decent six figures, right? And I was making decent six six figures. And it's always the case with me. I can always see like the next big thing. I'm always thinking like, man, if, if this is making six figures, why can't it make it seven? You know, like how am I going to get it to that next level? And so he'd sort of gone off to to New York and was running a really successful um, team over there in high-frequency trading. And I had sort of continued doing these sort of strategies myself on Betfair in London. Can
2: I just ask you, I mean, when we say, so your buddy who left the HFT firm wanted to run HFT-type strategies on sports betting exchanges, Um, I mean, that's obviously going to sound very vague to a lot of people, and including myself. Can you just give a little bit of color to the types of strategies that you were implementing?
3: Fundamentally, when you're doing trading or algorithmic trading, there's a few kind of categories of ways that you can make money, right? So arbitrage is like the big, there's the first category which everyone kind of clocks on to first and they can all, every, everyone kind of understands how arbitrage would work and so um in sports markets um you can you can kind of there's there's different exchanges there's bookmakers and sometimes there's there's miss there's mispricings and so you can kind of buy in one market sell in another and that will make you money now arbitrage is one of these things which if you can see it everyone else can see it and it's not that hard to spot and so arbitrage is one of these kind of these textbook HFT strategies where the person who gets that edge is the fastest. So the first person to spot the, the mispricing, buy where it's undervalued, sell, where it's over, you know, where it's 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 overvalued. Um, that's the guy who's going to make the money on that trade. And so that's but that's the first place where high frequency trading um is really important, right? Because it's all about speed. Okay. So those arbitrage strategies were something that we we never devoted much time to because um, we were never the very fastest, which is like takes a lot of coding expertise. All right, so then what's the next sort of HFT ish strategies? Okay, well the next one is if you look at the limit order book, which is if you're not familiar with it, like when you go on an exchange, you can see what all the all the offers are and all the bids are on whatever it is that you're trading. Right. So as time goes by, people are always buying and selling and buying and selling. Um, and there's all this data that's coming through. Okay. So if you see that, um, someone has just posted a huge bid and, and, and and let's just say someone's trying to buy, you can see that someone's trying to buy a load of stock and let's just say it's Apple, right? If you know that someone's trying to buy a load of stock of Apple, what do you think is going to happen to the share price? Right, It's probably going to go up. So what should you do? Well, before it goes up, you buy it. Then as this person who's trying to buy lo- loads more pushes the price up, once, once they're done, then you sell. Right, That's another um, high-frequency type strategy where it's about getting in and identifying that someone wants to buy loads before they finish their order and then exiting it as soon as they're done with their selling. Right. And so, and so that's another sort of high frequency style trading strategy. And, and I, and I always called that, um, a, like, like, like a price based, um, trading strategy, cause you're looking at the price, you're looking at price movements, you're looking at the limit order book. And so this was the the, the the sort of strategies which we were looking at. And there there is some overlap with like momentum tra- uh, trading and swing trading in this category of HFT. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. So as we were looking into these sorts of strategies, um, these, these, these really like price-based signals um, strategies, we were predicting where is the price going to go? Is the price going to go up? If we think the price is going to go up, we're going to buy. Predict uh, if, if you're predicting that the price is going to go down, then you want to sell. And so it's all about predicting the price, which at the end of the day, that's all trading. All of trading is about just predicting the price. And then the difference is, is time scales. So if you want to predict where the price is going to be in 60 seconds, you're kind of in the world of, of HFT, right? But if you're predicting where the price is going to be in three years, well, then you're a value investor. Right, and in sports, um, where the, like the analog to where the price is going to be in three years is who's going to win the match or who's going to win the race, right? So, and then to make trading decisions based on that. So, after my friend George went off to New York, um, I decided to look into these value um, style strategies. Right? So, I kind of felt like we were doing all we could do in, 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 with, with HFT and with my sort of skill set. And I knew that with kind of value investing style strategies, you've got much more scale. So, what does that mean? It means with HFT, any single opportunity is actually quite small, right? Um, and they come about really quickly, and it's a race to, to, to get to that opportunity. And it, it, it kind of took a lot of work to identify a single strategy. And then it took a lot of work to keep it running. And at the time, I was just one guy, not that great at coding, still learning. And I kind of said, well, if I did value based trading, I could just place one huge bet and I could scale my bets. I could bet as much as I wanted. And as long as I had an edge, that could grow into something much bigger with just a, as a single guy. And so I started trying to predict the outcome of sports events, who was going to win, who was going to lose, what their probability was. And it was, it was more successful than the HFT stuff. Like that was something that I was very good at. I was able to kind of find my edge. I kind of feel like I'd taken all those skills, um, from poker, from doing the HFT style algorithms. And I'd kind of found something which just, I was very good at. And so I developed a lot of um, a lot of innovative techniques to predict predict which team was going to win. Right now, this is something which you have to have a bit of creativity to do. So it kind of goes back to with poker, where everyone is different and everyone's got their niche. And 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 actually, a lot of life is about just discovering what is your niche. And so. If you're a bit creative and you're a bit of a wild card and you want to take risks, you've got to find what niche most rewards those traits, right? And so with poker, you've got to find the the, the right games and you've got to approach it in the right way. And with trading, HFT is actually a very—you you really have to be very diligent. You've got to be very consistent. You've got to have a great infrastructure to be the fastest guy. But with value-based investing, if you can come up with a good idea, if you can just come up with a different way of thinking about this problem or just a different way to model it than what everyone else is seeing, if you can just see something different that the market isn't seeing, you'll get a big edge. And and so I came up with a few different um, perspectives, a lot of them just really, really based on machine learning. So I would take a machine learning technique, like um, there would be machine learning techniques which work amazing for images right and i would go away and i think like how can i use this technique for images to predict a football match
2: images of what
3: so in machine learning like a classic problem would be um is this an image of a cat or is this an image of a dog that's like textbook page one machine learning image classification um and the computer scientists were coming up with amazing solutions they were they were like um they were beating a human level at recognition of images, right? So if 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 you have a like, uh, like I think I think like the most classic one is a is a data set of digits, right? And so for the post office, people in in America uh, a, a zip code is like six digits or something, and people w- would write down the six digits, and then at the post office they would scan all of these postcodes, and they would try to identify what these six handwritten digits are. And so, if you show that to like a human, they'll score like ninety-seven percent accuracy. Whereas the machine learning techniques would get up to like ninety-nine percent. They would they would surpass the humans. And so, I would I would read their papers and I would say, okay, how are they recognizing these images so well? What techniques are they using? Okay, how can I use these techniques uh, to predict who's going to win a sports event? Right, And so from this, there is a really great general principle. There is a really great lesson, which is like, see what works in other fields, right? Copy it, try it. Like, does that work in your field?
2: So you weren't necessarily trying to scan images of something related to a sports game. No, you're just copying the technique.
3: That's it. So how can this, I didn't now. So for example, best consider a football match. Like you'll have a data set related to football all right the players um their past performances um uh how far they had to travel to get to the stadium right you you will just have a bunch of numbers to describe uh the football match now that's totally different from an image so how can you translate this image technique to football matches and that's the sort of questions that i will sort of ask myself and and i'll try to come up with good answers and it worked like i had a lot of really a lot of um Good early success. And, and I remember having a friend who was, so Anthony um, was the smartest guy in the economic statistics, uh, lab or whatever. And, and he was just amazing at stats, loved, loved doing stats and was really interested in machine learning. And I said to him, like, this is what I'm doing. He thought it sounded super cool. And I said, listen, like, why don't you join me? Right. We'll spit the profits and you can help me with the machine learning stuff. And then he he had another friend, Maritz. Maritz is like this Dutch, kind of like maths genius again. And he just loves stats, loved op- optimization problems. And and me, Anthony and Maritz were kind of just those two guys I would leave machine learning to. And then I would focus on the trading and the execution. So when you if you think this particular team is going to win, that's only half half, half the problem. Like, how are you going to bet and how much to bet? Is still a very big and very important problem to have a good answer to. Um, you know, to anyone who doesn't know about like the Kelly criterion and like the appropriate way to scale bets. Um, if you don't scale your bets appropriately, it's very, very easy to go bankrupt. And so it doesn't help you that, um, If your betting strategy is such that 99% of the time you're bankrupt and 1% of the time you're the richest man in the world, that's not a good betting strategy, right? And so um, the Kelly criterion is just a really great first answer to sort of say, how should we be betting um, given we found this sort of edge? And this is something which I learned from my poker days. Because again, if you don't take risks appropriately, either A, you're going to be stagnant. Or B, you're going to blow up. Right. And that's what I would do a lot. Now we would do these this sort of trading and it was going well. And as it went more well, we would make more money. And then I would kind of get someone else involved. And you know, there came a time after like four or five, five people were involved, you kind of run out of friends. And then we said, okay, like let's form a company, let's try and hire someone, let's get someone to help us with the research. And and that was kind of how it how it all grew. And so, you would hire someone, and honestly, like every single mistake you could make, I would make. I would hire like the wrong people. I'd give them the wrong job, and and but through all of these these painful mistakes, I would learn a lesson. Right, I would, I would learn every lesson in the most painful way possible, but I would still learn a lesson, and I'd slowly get better, and I'd slowly get better, and the, the trading would continue to make more and more money and then i think there was a point in like there was one point when we first made eight figures in a year you know that that was like a big milestone um and so we all celebrated that was great and i said guys like we're making eight figures let's keep betting more like i've i think it's good we'd bet more and uh and then what would happen is we'd scale up and then suddenly the profits would be much less consistent. And I'd say, oh, that kind of hurt. Like we just lost hundred K in a day. That was painful. Or, or we'd scale we'd scale up a bit more and I go, oh, we've just lost 200 K in a day. That's the most we've ever lost. That, that kind of is a bit concerning, but I was always, I was always too optimistic and I was always too overconfident. And I remember one time I scaled up and we ended up losing again, literally about 70% of our bankroll. So we lost pretty much a million pounds in about a two week period. Now, I mean, looking back on it, it's just, I kind of laughed, but it was just the dumbest, dumbest, dumbest thing like ever, like to spend, like I literally spent probably six or seven years trying to build up this million pound bankroll and then to literally lose it in two weeks. Um, was again, it's just so, it's like, it's it's like embarrassing as well. Like when it's just, when it was just me doing poker, I didn't, I didn't feel embarrassed when I lost money because it was kind of my money to lose. It wasn't such a big deal, but when you're on a team and you got three or four guys doing great with their models and their predictions, and then you're the trader of the group and you go out and you trade it and you just lose all the money. That's embarrassing. And so, oh man, just so, so painful, so much embarrassment. And I would just say like, this has got to never happen again
2: can you just clarify i think before you said eight figures which implies over 10 million pounds is that correct
3: so we lost seven so a million pounds was kind of like no the but prior loss. to
2: that when you you'd built up your bankroll you, i think you mentioned eight figures i just want to clarify
3: so that's that's kind of where we are today This is like a a few years back. So back at that point, it still would have been seven. Okay. So yeah, like the thing is, is with risk, it's all about taking risks in proportion. If you've got an eight figure bankroll, you can afford to take seven figure risks. If you've got a seven figure bankroll and you're taking seven figure risks, you're an idiot.
2: Which is what you were doing in this example you just gave.
3: Which is exactly what, what I was doing. Right. Yeah. And And the, what would happen is we would lose a lot of money and I would look at it and I would say, man, are we losing money or are we being unlucky? And I would say, I think we're just being unlucky. I think it's okay. I think we should bet more, which is just insanity when you think about it, but that's exactly what we, which is exactly what we would do. And so at some point I kind of like the penny dropped in a really, really big way. Like I discovered, so. Ray Dalio is the founder of Bridgewater, which is, uh, the world's most successful hedge fund. And he wrote a book called principles, and it's literally a manual for, um, how he runs his hedge fund. And so I pretty much recommend this book to anyone that will listen to me, but you especially need to read it if you're interested in trading. Um, and he really, really talks about this idea of, um, of kind of understanding what your strengths are and understanding what your weaknesses are. And only once you really understand what your strengths are and your weaknesses are, can you begin to avoid these pitfalls. And so I came to realize like, what was I doing again and again, and again, I was being overconfident. Then I was taking too much risk and then I was getting outclassed and losing, right? Which which was which was working to some degree because I would learn these lessons and I'd continue to grow, but it was just ridiculously painful. Right? It was unnecessary. It was dumb. And so then I kind of realised, like, wait a second, like, I'm too optimistic. I'm not looking at the details in a in the right way to see to see when we're about to blow up. And so at that point, I said, I need to hire the most pessimistic, um, the most pessimistic intelligent, detailed, focused person I can find. And so I found this amazing trader called called, called George. He'd studied um, maths at Cambridge, really, really smart, and was literally the most pessimistic person you'll ever meet. So we were just such a funny team because I would be like super optimistic. This is going to go great. And he would say, Will, you're an idiot. Of course, it's not going to go great. Look at all of these problems. And as soon as we started having that sort of approach was the day we stopped blowing up. Because when I would be optimistic and he'd be pessimistic, we would have a debate and a discussion and we'd figure out like who of us, which of us was right. 50% of the time I would be right, but 50% of the time he'd be right. And so he was bringing to my attention, all of my weaknesses, all of my weak spots, he was pointing it out. And so through that, we were able to, to not lose in such a big way, to not make such big mistakes because I had someone else who was um, complementing my weak spots. And so it's, it's exactly the same as like a football team where you might have someone who's an amazing defender, but they're gonna make a rubbish striker. And you might have an amazing striker and they're gonna make a rubbish defender. And so with George and I, we were just this great team where you've got someone who's really quick, really aggressive, but then you've got someone who's working defense and is stopping any big mistakes from happening. Um, and, and once we had that, that was really, um, the solid foundation where if you think you're right, find someone that's going to disagree with you. It doesn't really, if it's an important question, find someone who will disagree with you and understand where they're coming from, because a lot of the time they'll see something that you don't see and, and it can be a simple fix and you reduce your chance of being wrong even if you're only wrong 20% of the time if you can reduce that from 20% to 2% you've just made your life a hell of a lot easier more money in your pocket yeah yeah and it, you know it's like it's not even for me it's all about growth it's all about how quick can you how quick can you grow like what's the how can you move to that next level and if you're always making mistakes if you're always dropping the ball and fumbling it you're just slowing yourself down it doesn't have to be that it doesn't have to be that that painful. Find someone who knows more than you about something and learn from them. That's the quickest way to learn.
2: We just pull away from the sort of the progression um, a little bit. I'd like to ask you some questions around seamless specifically. So seamless capital is your your firm today. What markets are you most
3: active in? Sports is still to this day our bread and butter.
2: Okay. Any particular sports?
3: So so. We trade a few markets on Betfair. Um, the biggest market that we're involved in would be horse horse racing in in Hong Kong. It's it's just huge. So if you Google horse racing in Hong Kong, I think something like ten percent of the of of the government's budget is funding through revenues raised in horse racing in Hong Kong. It's like this big monopoly, um, and everyone in the country. On horses, and so that's like as far as sports betting goes, that's the biggest market in the world. And so, at Seamless, and my own personal philosophy is, you need to go to where the liquidity is. You need to go to the biggest markets, um, and I would rather have a small edge in the biggest market, which we can we can grow and we can keep pushing ourselves and keep challenging ourselves and 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 always grow into, rather than an easy alluring thing a lot of people do is they they find an easy market where they can get a big edge but it's a small market right
2: is that your only preference for horse racing purely because it's a bigger market uh more liquidity etc or are there some other kind of advantages in horse racing which you don't see in some of these other sports like football tennis etc
3: honestly in my opinion i think um it, for me i've never thought it very important what particular asset we trade as long as there's a data set which is um, suitable for the machine learning techniques that we're using and there's a market which we can trade in that is an opportunity and then it's about weighing your opportunities which really comes down to how big how big is the upside right some people are, are happy being one-man bands right and i actually I like I interview a lot of traders and I and I speak to a lot of them and I kind of say to them, listen, like either you should be a one-man band and just do it by yourself at home and actually picking an easy market is a great idea. And the way to spot an, an easy market is simple. Like find a market which is small enough such that bigger institutional players won't have time for it. Right. And there are these markets left, right, and center. And so just find a market that's small enough that big institutional players won't be interested in it and you will find a niche. You've got to be willing to look about, to try, to try a few things. Like we've traded football, we've traded tennis, we've traded horse racing. We've done the high frequency trading strategies. We've done the value based strategies. um, we've traded crypto always, always. So I've got an 80, 20 rule, which is spend 80% of your time on your bread and butter and 20% of your time on wild cards right? Do things where you can be surprised. If you think something, if you think this thing isn't going to work, but it just might, and you'd be, and you're not sure, give it a go. Spend one day a week or one week a month or a couple months a year on these wildcard projects. And it's just an option. You're, you're opening up the door to opportunity.
2: Can you think of an example of one of these wildcards that uh, you've played around with?
3: So, I mean, to be fair, like, this whole, like actually getting into algor- algorithmic trading falls into that category, right? Where if I had like, I think a very sensible person would just say, listen, it's going to take me a year to get good at this, to get even like basic good uh, algorithmic trading. In that time, I could make a lot of money playing poker. I'm just going to focus on poker. Like that's a sensible answer. But if you take that answer to every single question that you come across, you're never going to unlock opportunities and so instead if an opportunity comes comes your way you can try it out and you can you can see how it fits and and you know 90 percent of the time you'll be disappointed but uh 10 percent of the time you'll be you'll be amazed
2: how many trades or how many games i'm not sure what's the right terminology to use here um but can you give some numbers around how many bets you're placing each day you know obviously that that varies quite a lot, I'd imagine, but just on average.
3: So it kind of depends. Like for trades, we make thousands and thousands of trades a day, right? But we only have to make these trades to accumulate our positions, and so we only want so many positions. So if we if we like um, if we think this this particular horse is going to win, or we think this particular team is going to win or score more goals, then we we want to we want to back this guy to win, right? We want to, or we want to bet on them to lose. And so that's only a few positions a day or a few, a few hundred positions a day. But to achieve those positions, because they're so big, because they're such a big part of the market, we have to place thousands and thousands of of trades, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. Would you mind just elaborating that on that a little bit? Like why do you have to break up your trades so much?
3: So let's just say we've got a football match coming up on Friday and it's Chelsea versus Man U. And you want want to bet um, £300,000 that Chelsea is going to win. Now, if you go on Betfair, no no one is offering a £300,000 bet on Chelsea. Uh, If you go to the bookies, no bookie in the country is going to take a £300,000 bet. But you can get a £1,000 bet. Okay, So you bet £1,000 for Chelsea to win. And then you wait and you wait 10 minutes and then someone comes and then someone's willing to offer a thousand pound back again and you take it and then you wait and then and by betting a thousand pounds and waiting for the, the liquidity to come back and betting again and betting again you avoid scaring off the liquidity and you're able to accumulate really big positions if that makes sense
2: so you're like a, a hidden buyer as we'd call it in financial markets exactly
3: exactly that's exactly what we do
2: you know, before you were talking about um institutional uh counterparts and obviously that's something we we talk about quite often in financial markets. I'd never really considered that to be a thing in uh sports betting markets as well. Um is that the case that there are what you'd call or classify as institutional players involved?
3: Yeah, yeah. So um so I would kind of classify uh my my trading and, and cmss um in that category where we've got a research team of 15 guys like they've all got phds they, they've all they spend all day long analyzing these markets now if you're a single guy that's kind of hard to be right um it doesn't really matter how smart you are that's pretty hard to be so, as a single guy, you're looking for opportunities where you're not competing. Like you want to stack the odds in your favor, right? Like if you can find a market which no one's really looking at because it's a bit too small for for big in, 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 institutions, and you and you find that if you're competing in that market, you're probably only competing against guys like you, like you, right? Like guys who are just one man bands. Like it's a fair fight. But if you pick a market, if you pick like the biggest market in the world, like you're going to be competing against literally hundreds of like teams of tens of people, right? Um, You're not going to win that fight. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I did want to ask you a little bit about research. Like can you speak on the research aspect, maybe how you like generate ideas and how you try to seek out or maybe discover other edges.
3: I think like a lot of people have, have read about this concept of deep work, right? And it's kind of like you, to get your best creative ideas out, you need to immerse yourself in this problem. You've got to switch the iPhone off. you got to switch the laptop off. You've got to go somewhere without distractions. And you just kind of need to immerse yourself in the problem. And so, um, yeah, I would. I would do, and, and, and the people that work at Seamless do, they'll just get a stack of academic papers and they will just go off to the park, they'll go off to the woods, they'll go off to the library and they'll just read it for a day or two days or a week, right? And go for a walk and have a shower and have a few beers, right? And you just got to come up with these ideas. And as you come up with ideas, you just need time, inspiration, immersion, no distractions. And so, as I was kind of saying with uh image classification, right? So as I was doing this thing, I, I would say to myself, All right, well, who is the best predictor in the world? Like who's who's the best at doing this kind of machine learning in the world? All right, fine. Like let's let's read some of DeepMind's papers and let's see what DeepMind's doing. Like, how is DeepMind been so successful at uh, um, playing Atari games using AI. All right, so understand those techniques. See what techniques they're they're doing. Can you apply any of them to your problem? Or maybe if you can't apply them exactly, is there a kind of um, analog that you can kind of apply the same sort of thing? And I would get these ideas, and I would I would apply them. So in machine learning sometimes it might be some little trick something you do to your data like you can augment your data in some way right there's some clever stuff that you can do or maybe it's uh, it's just a simple transformation like maybe you you just want to transform the odds in, in in some clever way right to to make them more informative on who's going to win and you go away and you try these ideas and just like any new idea 80% do not work of my new ideas are rubbish, right? But every so often you come across a gem and you go, wow, I can't believe that this thing works and this thing works great. That is one little gem and you keep that. And month by month, year by year, you just keep accumulating these gems, these gems, these gems, until you're going to be the best trader in your market.
2: When you do come across a gem, I mean, how do you think about optimizing and maximizing that? Like, optimizing that edge because this is kind of something you said uh earlier on you're like you want to look where is the money like where can i make some money and then how to get more more of it
3: cool that's a great question so for me this is kind of one of the things which i'm good at versus what i'm weak at so for me i'm always i've kind of got like add i'm always jumping from one idea to the next i'm always like coming up with weird and new ideas Um, and that's cool. Like that's, that's a important, uh, aspect to generating good trades, but actually just as important is, is executing them well and refining ideas and maximizing them. Right. And so I would have these, I would have these, these, these 10 gems, but I would only be trading them to maybe one tenth their capacity. Right. And so. Finding people that complement you and finding people that you complement is the key to um, to building great teams where um, you get you get way more out than anyone's putting in. And so I just paired up with people who would say, "Wow, that's a great idea, Will. Did you know that if you um, if you optimize this component of it, you get twice the result?" And someone else would say, "Oh, and if you optimize this component." You get twice, twice the, the, the result. And once you multiply all these people efforts, you end up with something which is 10 times more valuable than the thing that I was doing. So it's, it's simple stuff. Like I would like a simple a, a, a simple example might be you discover an idea for one market, but someone else might take that idea and investigate and say, Well, wait a second, this actually applies to all the markets that we're trading if you just do this one clever trick. Or I might come up with a rough idea, like I might say, this this thing works and it and and it makes more money. I don't really fully understand it, but I just know it kind of works. And then some someone else will say, well, wait a second, Will, you know this is this is there's a general. This is like a specific. Um, this is a specific formulation of a general uh, category of things, and you can optimize over all the possibilities. And if you do that, your idea is actually is is twice as good. And so that's, that's like working with someone who like is way better at maths than I am. They do that sort of stuff. Or another thing which happens a lot is I'll have an idea and the idea will work well. But someone will come along and say, hey, Will, like, there's a problem with your idea, which you didn't see. You overlooked it. And actually, if you address this problem, like maybe there's a simple, a simple way to change your idea to address this, this problem. And once you fix this, this problem, your idea is now twice as good. So like a simple example is like, I might come up with an idea or someone on the team comes up with an idea and it ends up just overvaluing long shots. That's a simple way to go wrong, right? You do something, it works, it works great for favorites, but it just, it overweights long shots. And so just a simple rule is like, don't trade um, if the odds of that event is more than 20. That's a really, really simple rule. And it's something which I would overlook but if you get someone a great with details and they spot that they've now increased your P&L by 50%. And it all comes from having complementary people on a team.
2: I did want to ask you a few specific questions around building a team because I think that that's something you've done which is mighty impressive. You know, you started out as a one-man band, you've now built to a team of 15. I think that's awesome. But just before we do, maybe slightly bit of a curveball question um i've made a note here to ask you about growth so i guess it kind of pertains to that but what would you say are like the biggest barriers preventing competition from replicating what you've built
3: it's so funny because to me i kind of think like we're that competition so like like the big institutions which are like there are people even bigger and they've been doing this longer than than us And we're like just about to eat their lunch, right? Like we're the ones that are growing, pushing ourselves, um, just pushing the envelope, just growing, um, we're the ones shaking things up. And so they're the markets that we're growing into, if that makes sense. So, um, so I think really the way I take that question is kind of like, how is it that we're able to penetrate markets? Which are mature, and how is it that we're able to kind of eat other people's lunches who have been doing it for a long, long time? And I think, I think two answers. I think the number one answer comes down to just complacency. It's it's human nature to become complacent, right? We, you know, we all know. Like your first day, you know, you, you do your hair, you shave, you wear your best outfit. By the tenth day, you you're, you know, you're unshaven, you're wearing your scruffy clothes. You become complacent and so i think a lot of people say it but if you have that attitude that you had on your first date or your first day in the office where you had something to prove you wanted to get everything done as best as you could if you have that attitude every day you're going to come out on top right you're going to you're going to you're going to beat the team which doesn't have that attitude that team which is just turning up it's, you know, they're just treating every day like it's like the day before, it's no big deal. They are not going to outperform or outclass the team, which has the hunger, which has the energy, which says we have to win this game. We can't lose. And and if you lose, they, ha- they, they say to themselves, this can't happen again. How are we going to win the next game? How are we going to maximize our chance of success? And you do that day in, day out, day in, day out, and slowly you're going to accumulate the lessons. You're going to accumulate the experience. And you're going to catch up, and pretty soon you're going to be overtaking.
2: I love that answer. That's uh, that's fantastic. Was there another part to that answer as well? You kind of hinted it. There might be a, a two prongs.
3: So I think I think there's the complacency, and then there's the challenge aspect, which ties in with it. Which is challenge yourself. If you think you're doing something well, and you feel confident, and you feel comfortable, you're not challenging yourself. Pick something which scares you. If you think if you think this scares me, do it. So, the easiest the the easiest analogy is like consider go, going to the gym. You know, we all go to the gym, and you start off, and it's a bit of a challenge. And pretty soon, it's so easy to just sink into the old routine, and you just do the same thing you did the week before. You jump on the treadmill for the same amount of time, and all of a sudden, it's easy. It's not scaring you. You've stopped growing. Do something which scares you. If doing a marathon scares you. By the time you've done that, you're going to be fitter, stronger, faster than you've ever been, right? Keep picking things which are going to scare you. Keep picking things which are going to get you out of your comfort zone. And it's a balance. Um, you want to push yourself to the place where it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's it's just a small stress. You don't want to go crazy where you just have a breakdown, right? You want to You want to push yourself just enough that it's uncomfortable, but you can just about figure out what's going on. You're learning, you're growing, you're adapting. Don't
2: be complacent. Fantastic. Okay, so let's move on to these just a few questions uh, more specifically around building a team. This is probably something which is a barrier for a lot of people, I'd imagine, and taking that step from going from a one-man band to something bigger than themselves is perhaps the cost involved. So I'll ask you, like, how did you justify the cost of hiring someone? Like, how did you go about that? Did you, did you offer that first person or those first couple people? Uh, was it a salary plus uh, some equity in the company? Or how did you approach that step?
3: So I will tell you uh, the sort of the secret. And this is, this is a bit of a secret. This is something which not very many people know. And once you know this, it really massively opens up doors in a big way. And is that people love to be helpful, right? So the number of people that I reach out to and I just say to them, listen, um, you don't know me, um, but I've got a problem and I'm looking for someone who can give some great advice and I'm looking for someone who's a little bit more experienced than me probably a little bit more successful than I am. And I just want some help along the way. And if you can give me a few pointers, and if it's a 15-minute chat or a half-an-hour chat, that would be amazing. The number of people that reply to that sort of message will floor you, right? So first of all, you don't actually have to hire people to get help. You don't have to have people working for you or working with you to get help you can actually just reach out and ask people for advice. So, so that's like the first biggest thing is find people who are that step ahead of you, or maybe two steps ahead of you and reach out to them and ask them for advice. It doesn't matter if you're playing, like if I was playing poker at the one cent, two cent stakes, you can find someone who's playing five cent, 10 cents, and they're going to give you amazing advice, right? And it works all the way up to the very highest stakes. Find that person who's one steps or two steps ahead of you, and just ask them, "How did you do it? What am I missing? What what am I not seeing?" And that is the biggest, most helpful thing that anyone that's hearing this can concretely do. You can just set yourself the, the task of reaching out to five people who are just two steps ahead of you, and just ask them for a chat, ask them for advice, and. People are generous. People are way more generous than is routinely acknowledged. People will get back to you. They will give you their time for free just because they want to help you. And yeah, do it. Just do it in the right way. Be respectful. Be nice. Appreciate their time, and they're gonna they're gonna want to help you. They're gonna want to see you be successful. Um, so that's like the first the first biggest thing. The second thing is, you know, you always have to take things. Like it's always baby steps, right? You're not going to go from crawling to sprinting. So forget about like don't don't try and hire three amazing developers. That's that's not the baby step. The baby step is like, do you have a friend who might be interested in this as a side project? Right? Like we've all got friends. So find find someone that you know who will be interested in doing this as a side project. Or or if if you're at that side project stage and you've been doing it as a side project. Maybe you can find someone who's a freelancer, right? And you can give them a little bit of money to work on it for a little bit of time and see what happens. And you are going to make mistakes and things are going to go wrong and you're going to learn. And some things are going to go well and you're going to keep those little gems. And so it's all about how can you grow? How can you move just outside your comfort zone? How can you take those right challenges, those baby steps um, to just keep moving forward? Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, hundred percent. It's a awesome answer. What would you say are some of the biggest mistakes, or you know, the lessons you learned with regard to hiring and growing a team?
3: Cool. So, for me, I'm just this optimistic guy, and I think, like, I mean, I'm like, I genuinely feel sorry for some of these people that I've employed. Um, I've, I've worked with in, in the past because I would get these guys on my team and they would be so smart and so like, um, good at a particular job, but they wouldn't, they would eventually like everyone eventually comes across a task that they just can't do. Right. And now the reason why they can't do it is just because that's not their strength. That's not their weak point. You might be, you might be the strongest guy in the gym but you, you're not going to have the best endurance or you might have the best endurance, but you're not going to be the strongest. Right. And if you, ex- if you push, there's, there's, there's a point where pushing people is no longer productive. And it's better to to recognize that like, okay, you've got this guy who's great at endurance running. If you need someone to lift something heavy, you need a new guy right? Or, or actually maybe you've just got someone who's not a good athlete at all. And it doesn't matter how much you push them, how much they train, they're not going to be a good athlete, right? Some people, they turn up to the gym and it's just easy. They like, they squat 200 kilos within a year. I'm right. I'm not very good at squatting. I've been squatting for years and years and, years and my numbers just aren't, aren't very good. And it's just about acknowledging like, what is it that you're very good at? What is it that they're very good at? And finding that out. And then and then working with it rather than working against it, if that makes sense. So, so that was like a very big hiring mistake that I made um, to start off with, where I would I would kind of expect people to be good at everything, um, or I would expect someone who, who's maybe not a superstar to 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 like become one through sheer hard work. That's not a good idea e- either. So, that was the first mistake. Is kind of know exactly what people are like, know what to expect from them. And then the second thing is, and, and by the way, like uh, my favorite example of that is like, we've got people at work who are very thorough and then you've got people at work who are very quick. Now, if you need a job to be done quickly and you ask someone who's very thorough to do it, you're an idiot. Because what's going to happen is the thorough person is going to spend ages on it, is going to do it very thoroughly and you'll just have wasted their time and you'll be frustrated because they did it longer. It took them longer than you wanted it to get done. Likewise, when you've got someone who's very quick, if you need a job to be done thoroughly and you ask someone who's very quick to do it, again, you're an idiot because you've just wasted, like, they're not going to give you the the quality of answer that was necessary, right? So that's a great example of just knowing what people are like. Now, the second biggest one, and this one's so important, is like, hire people, find people that you want to spend time with, that you enjoy spending time with. It's no, you know, it's no good. Um, making like building a strategy which makes loads of money if every day you go to the office you kind of are miserable because you're working with people who don't make you smile right is it, like you can have both find someone that is talented find someone that you enjoy working with find someone that you're going to be successful with and that you enjoy their company that you both get along you have fun with i always i always like draw parallels between hiring and like growing a team as dating um it's not just about having the two most attractive people in the room or finding the most attractive person that will accept, you know, going out on a date. It's about finding someone you've got chemistry with. It's about finding someone who makes you smile and laughs at your jokes, right? Like you might have a dumb sense of humor and 90% of people just cringe, but you've got to find that person who likes your, who likes your jokes. Um, And so I think, I think that's so important because at the end of the day, you're always going to fail right? You're going to push yourself and you're going to fail. You're going to push yourself and you're going to fail. And it's those days when you failed that like having someone that's going to make you smile, you kind of think, do you know what? It doesn't even matter if you, if you, you know, you don't have to win every game if you're enjoying the process and so enjoy it.
2: Just a very open-ended question to wrap things up here. Um, and you can answer this, however you see fit, whether that's, with regard to building a team or uh, building out your, your strategy playbook, etc., If you were to start again from scratch today, what would you do differently?
3: That's a good question.
2: It's a very cliche question, um, but I feel like you might have an interesting answer for it. No pressure.
3: <laughs> I think, I think there's, there's two things which I would do differently. So first of all, is that is that bit where I said reach out to people? Like, if 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 you think people aren't going to help you and and you don't reach out for that help, you're missing out on on such a valuable resource. And people are generous; they want to help you. So find that person one or two steps ahead of you, and seek their help, and they will help you. At least enough of them will, right? If you say if you reach out to ten people, one of them is going to get back to you, and one of them, even if it's just. 10 minutes, because they've traveled that path that you're going down, they can help you avoid some pitfalls. So just reach out to people for help. Go on LinkedIn, um, send emails to people like see who's in your own network. Um, you will be surprised. So that's the first thing. Like if I had done that, it would have avoided a lot of painful lessons rather than having to learn the hard way you can learn from other people's experience. So that's an amazing, um, Avenue to go down to grow quicker, to learn quicker, and to make things less painful. I think the second thing is don't underestimate yourself. So, like, be ambitious. Do that thing which scares you. If you think you can't do it, like, don't. I think a lot of people in life think like, "What can I do?" or "What am I qualified for?" or "What do I know?" What do I know that I can do? Don't even ask that question. Forget about that. Ask yourself what excites you. What's a challenge that you're not sure if you, if it's even possible? Aim for that because you're going to learn more. It's going to be more exciting and you'll be surprised what you're capable of if you reach for it. That would be my two lessons.
2: Very good, man. Will, I've massively enjoyed this chat. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Fantastic. For anyone listening who would like to follow you or follow Seamless or just kind of be in touch with what you're doing, Is there anywhere to go online? I know you have a pretty, um, you know, there's not much given away on the website. A low profile. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So, so yeah, um, we try to keep a low profile, but if anyone is interested in in kind of that culture of just pushing themselves, challenging themselves, and they're interested in the company, um, yeah, you can Google Seamless Capital. You can go on like um, SeamlessML.com and um, yeah
2: okay and i guess you've got a linkedin page and that type of thing as well
3: yeah Yeah, that's it you can get us on linkedin
2: all right but you personally you're not really on any socials
3: no i'm a low profile but you can um my linkedin is william rg beecham you can find me there
2: okay well i'll I'll put a link to that in the show notes anyway uh will again really enjoyed this so thank you very much i appreciate your time man
3: brilliant all right thanks